You're listening to another episode of Diary of a New Grad Speechy. We are the go-to podcast for students and new grad speechies who know a little about a lot, giving you our unprofessional but professional advice that you didn't know you needed. Hey guys and happy new year. Welcome back to Diary of a New Grad Speechy and welcome to 2022. Even though it is February, we haven't recorded any episodes since last year. So I feel like we can still say Happy New Year. Yeah, (laughs) still feels very weird to say 2022. But anyway, I'll get the hang of it. It definitely does. Today, we are addressing your questions about managing tricky behavior when working with clients. I know Cass and I are solely pediatric therapists. However, these strategies can always be applied to anyone across the lifespan. Yeah, for sure, Ash. And once again, please take these strategies as advice only and not gospel. We do discuss our experiences with behavior in the sessions that we've had in our careers and have put together some ideas that we've found helpful, including advice from supervisors and other colleagues too. Before we get into that, let's have a little quick catch up of our year so far. What's been happening for you, Ash? Yeah, I guess because it has been quite a while since... We last released an episode in December. So um, what's been happening for me? Well, at the end of last season, I let everyone know that I was had six months leave from my job and I am currently in Indonesia. Wow, that's so exciting. Yeah. How's it going so far? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really good. I love seeing my family. We're just traveling around on um, their yacht at the moment and it's really good but I have to say when I first got here um, at that time I had to do 10 days quarantine in a hotel <laughs> and look it was a big struggle that's a long time to just be in a hotel room isn't it it is a long time and I wasn't allowed to order any outside food or anything like that I was lucky that they had really good wi-fi that I could FaceTime people and get stuff done. But other than that, it was hard. (laughs) Yeah, really important things being done in quarantine. But I'm glad you don't have COVID, so. Oh, I'm so glad because when I left, everyone ended up getting COVID, the poor thing. So I felt really lucky that I actually avoided that. But one day I was just kind of standing. I opened my door for no reason. when people were walking past and I just said, morning. (laughs) And they came over to me like, yes, yes, um, yes, miss, like what's wrong, what's wrong? And I was like, oh, good morning. I'm just saying good morning. (laughs) I need some human contact. I haven't had any for so long. They were really confused. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. But other than that, yeah, just hanging out at islands and swimming and kind of living the life so it's been good I've got a tan which is nice oh I bet you do wow well I'm so happy for you I am a little bit jealous I must say work is work um (laughs) I do wish that I was on a yacht in Indonesia right now so yeah good for you I guess so anything specific that's happened Cass that you'd like to share or work's just been work Look, not really that exciting at the moment. I think I'm just trying to get through the new like policies and procedures going into work this year with all the new like COVID changes. So I guess it's just like 
a bit draining trying to get your head around that. But yeah, work's been pretty quiet so far because a lot of people are still away. So it's just been a nice ease into the year. Allows me to sort of like catch up and clean out all of my resources and organize myself. And then um, over the break, I just spent some time with family, my partner's family. We went up to Hamilton Island for about a week. Which looked super nice. Yeah, we had the best weather and then we came back to Brisbane and it was like raining for two weeks straight. So uh, the tan that I was hoping to get didn't go quite as planned, but that's okay. It was still nice to have a little break. I feel very grateful to be able to have that time off and travel a little bit. And it kind of forces you to relax a little bit more, I feel, when the weather isn't the greatest, you know? Oh, literally, I've just been napping for like four hours a day. <laughs> I remember one day when I was in quarantine and you called me Cass and I was like, what have you done today? And you're like, oh, I just slept for three hours. <laughs> Literally, I'm just catching up on all this missed sleep. Yeah. But I guess if it was sunny, it, you wouldn't really do that. Yeah. Well, I got to admit that even though the weather hasn't been so great in Australia, it's made me feel a bit happier being locked up in our hotel room so thank you world yeah. oh, it's much for muchness but anyway that's I guess our year so far hopefully it's a better year this year okay well let's get into some strategies to help manage behavior in clients Cass what has been your experience so far with behavior in clients this is such a good question Ash because I feel like when you're working with clients who experience challenges it's something that happens on a daily basis. Like I feel like it happens at least once a day in our work. Like someone could just be having a bad day or they've had a bad sleep. And yeah, I feel like it happens quite regularly. I don't know what you would say about that when you were working with peds. I think it's pretty rare to have a full day of clients where every client has just had the best session. And after those days, you, you think, wow, this is just the best day ever. But yeah, I would say, you know, you can guarantee at least one client in your day is going to have some behavior challenges. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, sometimes I try and put myself in the client's shoes to really like understand how they're feeling because, you know, usually you can prepare yourself if they're having a bad day. If you hear them in the waiting room or you might like walk out and see the parent's body language and you're like, "Uh uh-uh, today's not a good day. (laughs) <laughs> they give you a look like, take them away from me. Literally. <laughs> but I do feel like sometimes it can happen out of nowhere as well. Like, you know, you'll just be doing something and then they'll just have a meltdown. But one of my supervisors once related therapy to something like going to the gym with a PT. And I've never like taken, you know, I've never forgotten that. And I feel like many of us can relate to this as well. Like, you know, when a client comes to therapy, they're here working on things that are hard for them, like making the cut sound. So the analogy is like, think how you would feel going to the gym and your PT is telling you to do 50 squats before you can have a break. (laughs) And you're like, no, (laughs) literally. And you're like groaning and moaning because it's so hard. But, you know, deep down, you know that it's going to give you like really great legs. So you're going to do it anyway. But I mean, if it was me, I'd like complain for half of it and I'd go really slow and negotiate my way out of it but in reality kids are exactly the same when we do therapy with them and in reality kids don't understand that you helping them say the sound is going to help them talk with their friends better or talk with their teachers they just sometimes they don't understand why they're coming to see you even though you do a lot and a lot of 
talking about the sounds and sometimes they make the t sound or whatever sound that they're making for the error, they still just think that mum and dad are make, making them see this lady to do hard stuff. Yeah, they literally have no idea why they come to us. They just think that we're mean. <laughs> but I think something else that reminded me of that kind of analogy recently was when I like broke my wrist and I had to see an OT for a little bit of rehab and I couldn't do some of the things that they were asking of me and I realized like how overwhelmed I was getting because I couldn't do it and it was so hard to do things you know, that I used to be able to do and I was just like getting really upset. Like I came home and I was like to my partner, oh my God, like this is really upsetting me because I can't do it. And I saw firsthand, I think, what it was like to be on the other end. And like, I could feel myself getting really overwhelmed and like worked up because I couldn't do something. And so you can imagine how like that would translate into a child's brain. Yeah, totally. That's a really nice thought to have. You can see why they sometimes see us as a bad person that makes them do hard things. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But anyway, I feel like I'm going off the tangent here, but I think with behavior, it can be really dependent on how the client is on the day. And the biggest thing that we need to remind ourselves is that there's no quick fix or cure for behavior, but there are some things that we can do to ease the situation or make it better for everyone involved. So first things first, we just want to reassure everyone to go easy on yourself. I know as speech pathologists, we are usually bound by our feelings and go hard on ourselves. And a lot of the time we blame ourselves if things don't work out or if the client isn't engaged or if we didn't achieve the 100 trials, the list goes on. And usually when a behavior happens, it's really easy to blame ourselves. I know I do it a lot of the times, especially for my clients who are too and they are having a bit of a meltdown. If I don't get anything, I feel like, oh, what did I do that caused that? We've all been there before. You plan an amazing session, enter five trials into a new sound, and the client just flips it. (laughs) Then you sit there blaming yourself for pushing them too hard. Please know it's not your fault or a reflection on you if this happens. So take it easy. It doesn't help anyone if we just blame ourselves. Yeah, I think that's a really important point is like, it's not going to fix anything by blaming yourself. Like you're just going to make yourself feel worse. And when you start to become more familiar with clients and you pick up on their little cues and when they're starting to get overwhelmed, then you can, you know, really be aware and be like, okay, I'm going to hold off on adding that extra cue or pushing them to get five extra trials. We'll just have the reward. So Once you start to become more familiar with your clients, then you're going to get a little bit easier at it. So yeah, just don't blame yourself. Mm, That's true. The next thing that usually comes with behavior are parents apologizing and trying to get their child to do the work, which is so overwhelming. Like, you know, the kid's having a meltdown in the corner and, you know, the parents will be like, Ash, come back here. (laughs) You're being rude to Cassie. (laughs) You know, listen to Cassie. You need to do the work. Come on, come back and sit at the table. And it's just like, whoa. Yeah. It's so awkward. It is really awkward and I do now, but it can be a little bit awkward sometimes stopping the parent from doing that Mm. if that's their way of parenting and managing their child's behavior. And it's so hard to like pause them like when they're on that tangent. It's like, oh, okay, (laughs) just let them go. But I think one thing that I've learned is that like parents will usually feel really embarrassed for their child's behavior and they'll like apologize for what the child's doing. And Something that I've learned, like, you know, coming out in my career is that I'll always try to put the parent at ease if the child's, you know, doing what they're doing. Sometimes that's ripping the cupboards open, but usually I'll say things to the parent like, 
it's okay. You know, Ash is probably just having a bad day and we all have a bad day sometimes. And then I'll follow it up with something like, you know, how about we just let her go for a few minutes and then see if she feels like doing something else. And I find that the parents will usually calm down okay, which I think the child can pick up on that and then they calm down as well a little bit. And I don't know if that's something that you've found as well, Ash, with parents when that happens. Yeah. And sometimes you have to just be a little bit more direct with parents and just say, let's just let them do that, kind of ignore them, give them their time to calm down and then we will get them back to the table. I find that sometimes if parents keep pushing their kids, their children, I should say, to come back to the table, come on, Ash, come on, Ash, come back to the table, do this, do this, do this. They're just going to get more cranky and more angry and refuse even more. Yeah. (laughs) Never ends, right? So the next thing to keep in mind with behavior is understanding Skinner's theory. At uni, uh, I think it's usually in your first or second year, depending on which university you go to, but you will learn about this. And it's otherwise known as operant conditioning, which I'm sure you have all heard about. In other words, basically what it talks about is the link between a behavior and a response. So it is described as operant conditioning relies on a fairly simple premise. Actions that are followed by reinforcement will be strengthened and more likely to occur again in the future. If you tell a funny story in class and everyone laughs, you'll probably be more likely to tell that story again in the future. If you raise your hand to ask a question and your teacher praises your polite behavior, you will be more likely to raise your hand the next time you have a question or to make a comment because the behavior was followed by a reinforcement or a desirable outcome, the preceding action is strengthened. Conversely, actions that result in punishment or undesirable consequences will be weakened and less likely to occur again in the future. So if you tell the same story again in another class, but nobody laughs this time, (laughs) (laughs) which would be awkward, (laughs) you will be less likely to repeat the story again in the future. If you shout out an answer in class and your teacher scolds you for it, then you might be less likely to interrupt the class again. So that's what you learn at university. And now you've got to take that theory and apply it into, okay, well, what does this look like in therapy when I'm with a client? But this type of reinforcement happens a lot in therapy. You know, if a child does something and you see them look at you, their parent for a reaction, something which a lot of parents do is respond to this. And as Gaz said before, like, Ash, come back here. The child is getting the attention, so they are more likely to do it again, you know, in theory. Sometimes, I don't know about you, Cass, but I find that clients sometimes act up a little bit more when their parents are in the session because they get that attention from the parent that's in the session. Yeah, I feel that I feel that that happens quite regularly and I think it does come down to the attachment that the parent and the child has, particularly yeah, if like totally. a parent is sitting on their phone and you know, a little Joey is doing their activity and they look up to their mum three times and you know, the three times they look up their mum's on their phone and then the fourth time Joey looks up, he's banging his head on the wall. You know what I mean? Like I feel like sometimes it's like a build up of like attachment and attention, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, which is a very complex area. And I guess children are very complex to work with. Sometimes I often disregard their behaviour and, you know, can use language like, Ash, this behaviour makes me sad. I'm going to wait here until you're finished. And then usually I keep doing what I'm doing. And 
in my practice, I'm going to say nine times out of 10, they'll usually come back because they haven't received the reaction that they wanted, which is us or the parent constantly giving them the attention. Come on, Ash, come back to the table. Ash, 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 Ash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really good point, Ash. And again, it's based on that theory really in terms of how behavior works, but it is going to depend on the child and the parent and the situation and all of that. But like you said, I have found that that has worked as well in my practice. And you can go into such depth with behavior management and even just talking about, you know, that operating conditioning and how you respond to the child's behavior and rewards and all of that stuff. But we're just really touching briefly on the surface. So, you know, there is a lot more that we can say about this topic. Yeah, for sure. We are not experts in this area. This is based solely on our experience. (laughs) Okay, next one. So I think this one is really dependent on the activity and the setting that you're working in. You know, if you're finding the client is having behaviors because they are overwhelmed with the therapy, I would then focus on reducing all expectations of the child and take the pressure off them. So you might revise your session goals and just go right back to the start of just basic building rapport and basic trust with the client because you want them to trust you and you want them to have a good relationship with you. And sometimes that might be better for the child that day. And I always think, well, if they're not going to engage, you're probably not going to achieve anything anyway. So it's always best if the child leaves the room with a positive view of therapy rather than a negative one, because I feel that that's what they remember for the next session. And it's always hard if you go and get them out in the waiting room and then they go like this when you see them and call them over. (laughs) (laughs) It's so embarrassing when everyone else is in the waiting room (laughs) and you can't get like a five-year-old again. This is a really big one that you learn when starting to work with pediatric clients. And like you said, Cass, you know, making sure that they leave on a positive note. If we reduce all the expectations, at least they're still getting the activity completed or playing with you. Don't feel like because they're there, you need to always get the speech work done because if they're kicking and screaming and yelling at you because you're trying to get them to say car five times yeah you really need to think about what's going to happen in the future sessions when I get this activity out again are they just going to refuse all together which happens yeah it does they remember (laughs) they do remember (laughs) just just keep that in mind yeah and something that I will do as well if you know I have to scale back all the activities I'll just go back to visuals so something like a red and green choice works really well if the behaviors are also happening at home. So I might send that home with the parents, which is basically just in a nutshell, like the child has to get, you know, five green choices before they get a reward. If they do something bad, then they'll get a red choice. So I find it's quite easy for the child to understand. Sometimes I'll also use the like good listening visual where it just outlines, you know, listening with your eyes and ears and sitting still With this strategy, though, I feel like it really comes down to using your own clinical judgment to really understand if the child that you're working with who has those behaviors can actually understand that kind of language. So it is going to be very client dependent on whether you pull out something like a complex visual or a complex reward-based chart. Would you feel the same, Ash? Yeah. And just to add on top of that, 
if they can understand that language, but then also if their body allows them to sit still. I know there's been some controversy about this good listening visual, you know, if a client does have sensory issues that they need to address to help them to pay attention. So as you said, just using your your clinical judgment, obviously you're not going to use the sitting still visual for a child that is very movement seeking or needs to be fidgeting to help them listen. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Please don't just use this with anyone. That's probably the biggest thing. But red and green choices I found, I use that all the time. I love it. It's so nice. It's such a good visual and it just helps a client and a child understand, you know, what positive behavior is and what negative behavior is. Yeah. It's essentially, you know, that operant conditioning that we were talking about, but just with visual. And I feel like it's really easy for parents too. Totally. I've actually started doing it on the boat here with my two and a half year old niece. Oh, Arnie Ash. (laughs) (laughs) She is extremely advanced we can have full-on conversations with her. And so if we say, you know, don't do something and she keeps doing it and we say, because I said, that's not good enough for her. So she'll just keep doing it. And then we'll say to her, Nora, why are you doing that? And she says, because I said. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I've been doing red and green choices and it's been pretty good so far. She's um, enjoying it, which is nice. Oh, that's good. Hopefully that lasts the entire time that you're on the boat then. Let's hope. I'll report back. (laughs) Yeah. Just keeping on the topic of visuals because visuals are awesome. But if your client, you know, really struggles to kind of understand the red and green choices or the good listening visual, I also just use really simple visuals to reduce the choices for the child. So I will use first this then that chart where they have two things to pick from so if the child is up walking around the room and struggling to come back to the table then I'll pack some of the activities away and use a visual with two choices and let them choose one of them or the order because sometimes kids can become really overwhelmed because they see all of these things and they think they have to do all of it in the session you know they see all the toys they're like oh my goodness there's just too much Also on this note, timers work really well as well. So sometimes with the timers, I might get my phone out with the timer, with the visual timer or use one from the cupboard and say to the child, when this goes off, we are going to come back to the table and pack away. Again, that reduces my expectations, but also working on them following the session structure and my rules. (laughs) Haha, packing away. No, sometimes I feel like they don't understand that packing away is actually like following the session (laughs) Mm. like yes I'm finished and I'm like yes you're following you're following like yes I'm I'm done so I'm going to get up from the table and you pack away Uh -uh. I never let anyone out of my room unless they've packed away it's like this is the expectation and we're not leaving until you've packed away yeah I always get my clients to pack away their activity that they were doing and sometimes I get really frustrated if like the parents just like get up and leave and like don't make the child pack away. And I'm like, no, 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 Joey, come back here. No, no, no. That's not happening on my time. <laughs> I feel like when I have kids, I'm probably just going to be like totally opposite. <laughs> just on Nora as well. I'm trying to get her to pack away, which she does all right now. But if she's in a little bit of a mood, she goes, no, you pack away and please. 
my brother's gosh. like, Nora, Nora, pack away your blocks. And she points back at my brother and goes, no, you pack away. <laughs> oh, she's like a little teenager, seriously. Yeah, Nora, that's making a red choice. <laughs> so funny. Please video that next time and send it to me. I will. Maybe I can put it on the story so everyone can see. All right, moving on. What else are we going to talk about with behavior, Cass? So we kind of touched on this one before about a child sitting still and, you know, helping them be calm and things like that. So depending on the child, and you're probably going to know this if you work closely with OTs, but using sensory strategies can really help calm the child as well. So, you know, like crashing or jumping or squishing them. However, please don't use these strategies unless you've had a chat with a qualified OT who can tell you what that specific child needs to help them calm down. Because OTs obviously know the sensory system best. And sometimes if you give a child the incorrect thing for calming down, it can actually overwhelm them more. I have had experience with that. So do not do that. Yeah, Um, really good tip. (laughs) Yeah, just a little FYI there. But yeah, I feel like OT strategies work really, really well with the clients that I have for joint. We... We could probably recommend that, you know, if you don't work closely with OTs, it'd probably be good to reach out to someone that's around your area and just see if you can have a chat about behavior or sensory stuff that you could try with clients because honestly they are just a wealth of knowledge and managing behavior is their expertise. So you will definitely benefit from having a close relationship with an OT. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ash. Especially if they're in your area because more often than not, you will be seeing the same clients. (laughs) Yeah, most likely. So for the next one, depending on the age of the child, I found in my sessions that you can label their emotions and acknowledge how they're feeling and that actually gives a really positive response. So we want to protect them and we want them to know that although we are there to work, we, we can also be a safe space for them. We can use language like I can see you're feeling upset or I can see that you're scared about doing this activity or I can see that this activity is really hard for you. How about we pack this up together and decide on something else to do together? Just acknowledging how they're feeling can make them take the weight off their shoulders. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really underrated calming strategy and it can be applied to across the board I feel yeah absolutely and I feel like this one works really well with like older adolescent clients so for the final strategy this one can be applied if nothing else is working and you don't really know what else to do it is a really good one though and sometimes all the child needs is for you to just sit there and match where they're at and give them time and space Obviously, you're going to be able to judge if their behavior is safe. So, you know, if they're banging their head against the wall, then probably don't leave them to do that. But if it's something like pacing around the room or crying, then you can give them that space and let them know that you are there when they're ready, like Ash mentioned before. I think something to keep in mind is that it can be really tricky working with clients and families when they are vulnerable. So, you know, just being easy on yourself and sometimes understanding that those behaviors can happen quite regularly in our kind of work. So, yeah, and we're not experts in this field, but sometimes it does help just listening to others' ideas on what they do in these kinds of situations. Nicely said, Cass. I often use, and you know what, 
sometimes, and I'm going to say more often than not, you will try all the behavior management strategies that you can and nothing works and you find that just sitting back and as you said letting them know that you're there when they're ready and letting them have their little moment and then they come back literally makes the world of difference and I find that with some of them if I keep saying to them or keep talking to them or offering them choices or whatever it is I'm trying to do for them it just makes them more frustrated So this is definitely a good strategy just to have in your toolkit. So we hope that these strategies give you some confidence when working with a child with tricky behaviours. And if you're already doing these things, then it can be nice to know that what you're doing is right and, you know, you're only human. So go easy on yourself. And once again, like we said before, behaviour management can be such an in-depth topic. So these are just a few on-the-surface ideas that we have found helpful for us. So just keep that in mind. And if you do need extra help with that, we do recommend speaking to your supervisor. Once again, thanks so much for listening and supporting us and we'll see you all next week. Thanks guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you'd like to stay up to date with us, then please give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook at Diary of a New Grad Speechy. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review below. Thanks so much. See you next week.